Today's like the Super Bowl of church attendance, and so we're glad that you came. Thanks for celebrating with us and, and being a part of it and uh, for taking a chance. If, if you just decided to come to church for the first time, I mean, it's, it takes a lot to walk into um, a weird place like this. Hopefully we've made it less weird, but uh, we're not all weird. Some of us are, some of us aren't, but uh, we're glad that you're here nonetheless. And so um, today we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ for sure, but um, I, I really want to communicate some things to you that are, that are really going to bring about some incredible wisdom in your lives and my prayer is that you leave here with a new understanding of what wisdom is. And I, 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 I've, I've, got, I've got some things to share with you um, that I, I, think, I think they will be helpful. And um, we'll just see how it, how it comes together. And so um, I, what I've got here is I've, I've got a little bit of wisdom for you. I don't know if, you've, if you know what this is, but this, it, this is packed with wisdom. It's, it's, it's amazing. Um, it might be life-changing. We'll see how the sermon goes. Um, I've never preached on a, uh, a fortune cookie before, but um, it should be good. Let's see what God has for us here. Um, see here. 54, 30, 20. No, oh, okay. There, there's, there's some other writing here. No need to worry. There's no need to worry. Let's find out why. You will always have everything that you need. Wow. Is that true? I'm not sure it is. I, that, that might be a lie. Let's, maybe we need another one, right? Okay. Let's just see here. I was actually going over this bit in my office last night. I must have eaten 20 of these things. It's like, how is this going to go in front of people? Like, uh, there's wrappers everywhere. It just it looks like I got the munchies. But that didn't happen. I'm not like that. But... Uh, uh, good luck is the result of good planning. All right. Um, that's, that's good. Okay. Uh, f why am I talking about fortune cookies? This is going to bug me the whole time. Let's just put that over there. And that is two. So we'll move that as well. Okay. Um, yeah. So why am I talking about fortune cookies? Uh, you know, in, in our world, it's hard to determine, like, who has good wisdom and who doesn't, right? Like, who should I listen to? Like, there is no shortage of people who have an opinion on your life, what you should do with your kids, how you should have your baby, like, where, um, where you should send them to school, like, um, you know, what's best in business, what's, what's best in life. Everyone has an opinion, and they've got a blog or they've got a Facebook that they will not stop posting on, right? Their, their, their ideas of what wisdom is. Wisdom is coming from all sides. And the question is, like, how can you determine what true wisdom is over, uh, you know, the fortune cookies? Um, because most of us, and I, and I say most of us, uh, do not take fortune cookies literally, and we, we would not really listen to those. But um, how do we look at that? How do we, how do we find what true wisdom is? Well, I, I want to assert to you today that man's wisdom, everyday man's wisdom, my wisdom, if it's just coming from me, is like a fortune cookie in comparison with God's wisdom. And really what we find is if you want to understand the wisdom of God, 
You've got to start on Good Friday with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And you've got to end with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because this is what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1, verse 18. It says this, For the word of the cross is folly. And what that's saying there is it's saying the story about Jesus uh, going to the cross, the story of, of that taking place, is it's foolishness. It's folly. It's, it's folly to those who are perishing. So there's people who they look at the cross and they say, that's foolishness. Why would that make any sense? And if that's you, I, I, uh, I want to try to convince you otherwise. But it says this, it's folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is, that story, that thing, is the power of God. It says this, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And he's quoting from the Old Testament here. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Um, and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly, through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. A, a seemingly insignificant act in the midst of history. God decided to use that before time began to be the most important thing that ever took place in our world. It pleased God to preach, or, or, or through the, the foolishness of what we preach, to save those who believe. And he says this, for Jews demand signs. They want to see the supernatural. Hey, Jesus, will you make me a sandwich? Hey, Jesus, will you do this? Hey, hey Jesus, you know, I, I want you to do all these things. And Greeks seek wisdom. I want to know what's wise. Well, where, where's wisdom? But we preach our wisdom is found in Christ crucified. Our wisdom, Christianity, our wisdom is found in the worst thing that ever took place in the history of humanity, in the history of the world. Our wisdom is found there. We don't come together to mourn the loss of our Savior. We come to celebrate his loss on the cross and his resurrection today, on Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. And he says, but we preach, our wisdom is found in Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The Apostle Paul is telling us something, and he's, he's telling us something that is extremely important. And what he wants to say to you and what he wants to say to me. And if you're just investigating Christianity, or maybe you don't care, someone drug you here. I'm still glad that you're here, and I've got your attention, hopefully, for a few more minutes. But if you're here, I just want you to know one thing, and what Paul wants you to know is just one thing, that God's wisdom is found in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's not a way of life that we're teaching. We are teaching a person. We're teaching a person, and the act that that person, God in the flesh, did on our behalf. If you want to understand God's wisdom, the Apostle Paul says, God says that you have to begin there. Now, why is that? Why do I have to start with the crucifixion? Why do I have to start in this 
particular area. Can't I start in any field of, of study that I desire? You can. But if you want to be intellectually honest about investigating who Jesus is, investigating what Christianity is, then you may want to look at it from the viewpoint that we do. And so why, why is this important? Why is the cross the most important thing? Well, there's another story in Scripture. It's in Acts 17. And in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul, he walks into Athens. Now, Athens is full of these great philosophers, these people who are very smart. They have these Greek gods, and they have these statues uh, for them, and they, they worship them and serve them, and they build temples for them and, and things of that nature. But Paul walks in, and he wants to communicate something that's incredibly important to them. He wants to communicate to them about who Jesus is. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up right now is to help you understand, if you don't know, like, why is this, why is this important? Why would we even talk about this? Why would we talk about the death of our leader and be excited about that in a way that no other religion is? Like, why does this make sense? And so Paul comes in, and he, he comes in to speak to these great philosophers, and he says some incredible things. He says this. He says, men of Athens, uh, chapter 17, verse 22, says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So they have this altar with this inscription, and it says, this altar is for the unknown God. And what we surmise is this, is that it's perhaps there because they have all of these other gods, and now they're like, well, there may be a God that we're missing, that we haven't heard about, that we haven't dreamed up, and so let us create this other altar. And so Paul comes in and he says this, he says, I see that you have this altar to this unknown God, that you don't understand who this person is, and he says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He says, you don't know about this God? I'm going to tell you about him right now. I'm going to tell you about this God. And so he says this. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek for God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Now what the Apostle Paul just said was this. He said, this God that you don't know, the unknown God, he has created all things. He sustains all things. He, all of these things are taking place. He does not need humanity in order to exist. He has done one other thing. And what, what's he say here? He says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, we'll stop right there. What Paul just said was this. He said, he's all-powerful. He's, he's created all things. He sustains all things. He doesn't need humanity. He doesn't need to be served. But he also said something else. He talked about repentance. He said, there was a period of time that God overlooked sin. But that period is over. And this new period is taking place. And now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, if you've been a, a, around at all, you've probably seen some street preachers. And they're often yelling, repent. And the people from Westboro Baptist Church, those idiots, I, I can truly call them idiots, who go and protest soldiers' funerals and, and things like that, you know, will hold signs up like this. And oftentimes that word can be associated with people who do things like that. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying he's commanding all people everywhere to repent, not like these street preachers, not yelling in your face. It says this, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. God has fixed a day when he is going to judge the world. Now, what does that mean? Oh, here he goes. I, I knew this guy was going to start talking about judgment and repentance, and that's all that Christians talk about and stuff like that. But no, here's, here's what it actually means. It means this. Your decisions matter. It's not life-changing, but your decisions matter. You know what that also means? It means that other people's decisions matter. Other people's decisions matter. That means that the pain that they've caused you matters. Because of this, because there is judgment. Because there really is a day when he will judge the living and the dead. There really is a day when judgment comes down. And we will be judged. And you say, you know, I don't really like this idea of judgment, but here's the thing. You and I judge all the time. We judge all the time. There, surely there is somebody in our world who's doing something that you don't believe to be right. There's judgment that flows out from us all the time. There's judgment that's constantly taking place where we say, you know, you should not have done that to me. You should not have taken advantage of me like that. You can't say that unless there is a standard by which to judge things. And so what Paul is, is saying here is he's saying God is commanding all people to repent because there is going to be judgment. There will be a day that is judged, that, that all people are judged. For the way that I treat other people, for the way that people treat me. And so what's he done by it? And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What Paul said is there is this is that the way that you know that this is going to take place is because of Jesus' resurrection. Why? Why, why does that matter? It, it matters because of this. You know the, these goofballs that sometimes claim to be Christians or sometimes they're just wackos and sometimes they're Christians and wackos or something along those lines, and they're constantly claiming, like, the end of the world is coming at this point. The end of the world, it's going to be in year 2000, the whole Y2K, 
Okay, thing. The end of the year is going to come here. The end of the, year's, or the, end of the world, as we know it, uh, is going to come to an end, right? And, and they, they're making these claims. But what would happen if one of their claims, whether it's the end of the world or something else, Armageddon, whatever that, that may take place, what if one of their claims came true? What if multiple claims of theirs came true? We would start to say, uh, this guy is tapped into the right source, right? This guy's got it. What the resurrection proves is this, is that what Jesus said and did is true and effective. What Jesus said and did was true and effective. It verifies that Jesus is the Son of God and that he knows what he's talking about. Now, but here's the other problem. Okay, I don't really believe in the resurrection. And even Christian people who are at least Christian in name oftentimes go, I, I get it, but I'm like, I, I still don't get it quite yet. Like, how, how can I believe this? Well, the problem is this, is that oftentimes we're not really thinking about, okay, what is the verifiable proof that the resurrection really took place? Well, you've got to begin with a historical record. There has to, we have to look back at the history of it. But here's the problem. The history comes from the scriptures themselves. And so what you have to do is you have to look at the scriptures and you have to say, are the scriptures true? Can I believe what they have to say? Can I trust what the scriptures uh, are, are telling me? Well, let, let me give you some, some thoughts on this real quick. This is from the ICR, the Institute for Creation Research. Very easy to find uh, online, but great content here. It said, this is, there is more evidence for the Bible's authenticity than any literature throughout history. There is greater, more evidence for the Bible's authenticity than for any literature of antiquity. Secondly, there is an, an enormous amount of evidence for authenticity of the biblical manuscripts. Here's why. The New Testament was written in 1st century AD. There are some 20,000 20, manuscripts in existence. The earliest textual evidence we have was copied only 100 years after the original. In contrast, listen to this. Caesar's Gaelic Wars was written in the first century B.C. There are only 10 manuscripts in existence. The earliest textual evidence we have was copied 1,000 years after the original of that. Aristotle's Poetics was written in the 4th century B.C. There are only five manuscripts in existence. The earliest textual evidence we have was copied, copied 1,400 years after the original. That's crazy when you think about how much uh, evidence there is for the scriptures, and yet so many people throw that out and say, well, that doesn't really matter. He says this, there were millions of man hours spent in cross-checking the manuscripts, there remains only 1% of all New Testament words about which questions still exist. No questionable passage contradicts any Bible teaching. Lastly, the textual evidence is greater for both the Old and New Testaments than any other historically reliable ancient document. Many people, they think about the, the, uh, the translations of the Bible and they say, well, how can that be? You know, it's just, it was translated here and then it was translated there and then it was translated here. No, we have multiple copies from different periods of time that all agree with one another. 
They've been cross-references. Is the legend growing, or did this take place in this time? And that's what is happening here. And we come back, and it's continually here and here and here. We're hearing the same story from all of these people. So here's the thing. When you look at the Bible, if you really were to uh, study it, what you would find is this, is that it is a historically reliable document. You may not believe it, but it can be taken historically. And so the next thing is this. So you look at the scriptures. So why would we, so we look at the, the, the scriptures and then we, we begin to read there. And so what do the scriptures tell us? The scriptures tell us the first thing is this, is that the empty tomb took place, that it really happened. How do we know that that took place? Well, it tells us that uh, women came and found the empty tomb. Why does that even matter? Because of this. Women were not considered to be reliable witnesses during this time. I mean, all of us can say together, like, that's chauvinistic, that's ridiculous, but that's their society. Why, if you're trying to create a legend, if you're trying to create a lie, would you use the least valuable witness type in that time period? Wouldn't you have used a man so the fact that they didn't use men is significant. Secondly, there are hostile sources within the context of the scriptures that even agree that the tomb is empty. Matthew 28, uh, in verse 11, it, it begins there to talk about how the Jewish leaders were, were saying, were realizing that the tomb was in fact empty, that Jesus was gone. And so they said, let's pay the soldiers so that they go and tell everyone else that the disciples actually stole the body. So here you have a hostile source confirming the reality that the tomb is indeed empty. Third, uh, there's a New Testament critic, J Jacob Kremer, who specialized in the study of the resurrection. And he said this, By far most exegetes who are scholars who study the biblical text hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. And he lists 28 scholars to back up his fantastic claim. He says, scholars look at this and they look at, at what took place here and that tomb was empty historically. That took place. Now why should that matter? Well, because of this. Because Jesus is said to have resurrected here. The disciples, a few days later, are standing in the very same city that the resurrection took place. They're standing in the very same city, and they're preaching about the resurrection. They're talking about Jesus. They're saying that, that he is the God of the universe, and anyone he, here who is listening to that sermon could have walked to his grave to see that he indeed was not there. But that doesn't necessarily prove that he was resurrected. What it does say is this, is that there is an empty tomb. It cannot be a legend based on, well, he really died and he was buried, but, you know, then this happened. No, it, there was an empty tomb. Sec, uh, and, and here's another thing here. Uh, the disciples say that they had real experiences with the risen Jesus. The disciples said this. And there's three possible options there. Either they were lying they were delusional, or they really did have an experience with Jesus. Either, either they're lying about this. So here you have uh, 11 guys who are proclaiming that Jesus is resurrected and that this truly matters in their lives, and people are coming to know Jesus as a result, and then 10 of them are put to death, not all at one time, 
but they're, they're put to death. They're martyred for their faith. So you have to have 10 guys who are lying about something, and all of them individually, without recanting, go to their death? How does that take place? There's so many different uh, controversies that have taken place over the years. Somebody always talks. These guys didn't talk. You could say, well, they were delusional. They didn't really know what they were talking about. Now, how often do people have the same delusion all the time? Drinking the same Kool-Aid, smoking the same whatever, that that type of thing. They would all have to have the same delusion and go to their deaths believing that same delusion. The last thing I believe that we're left with is this. They really did have real experiences with Jesus. And there's multiple other types of evidence that we can look at about the resurrection. But these guys really believed this. They really believed this. And so here's the thing. If the resurrection is true, if the evidence is there, it means this. Your decisions matter. The pain that people have caused you matters. It means that everyone will have to give an account, including you and including me, for the way that I have treated others, the way that I've treated myself, and ultimately the way that I've treated God. He's fixed a day when he will judge the world. You might say, I really don't like this idea of judgment and pain and suffering, but here's the thing, you really do believe in it. You really do. I was driving down uh, the road the other day, and um, all of my sinful stories really start out with me driving. And so um, I was driving, and I'm, I'm really driving kind of fast because I needed to get back to the office. I was getting ready for Easter, but I had to get um, some meat. And so I, I know that's surprising. Um, if, you've, if you had been here at all, I, I talk about um, beef a lot. And so um, in any case... Uh, so I'm driving. I'm very intent on where I'm going. I'm cruising. I'm, I might be going over the speed limit, but I, I'm not sure about that. I'm, I'm cruising along, and I see this woman pull out, and, I, and I'm thinking to myself, she's going to pull into the center lane, and everything's going to be fine. Nope. Skip the center lane. Let's just pull right in front of this guy. Looks like he's in a hurry to get some beef, right? And so I'm like, I have two option that, options there. I can make her pay for her crime. Okay, and by payment, I mean, I'm not talking about shooting anybody, but um, not really. But I, I mean, I can make her pay for her crime or I can absorb the crime. I can absorb what she's done to me by making me 10 seconds later to the store, right? I can decide that, uh, that okay, it's, it's not a big deal. I'll absorb this insult or I can make her pay. Do you know what I did? I'm a pastor. What do you think I did? I honked the horn at her, right? I just, just, uh, and then I hit the horn, and I'm not sure I've honked at anybody before in this car, and it was like, it's just not, just doesn't have much oomph to it, you know? It's just like, I just, I felt less manly, like I just didn't have, just didn't have what it takes, and so I honk, honk this horn, and the, you know, in my satisfaction, no, I taught her something, right? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, she's, like, making these, like, woo, you know, and I'm, like, woo, you know. And I didn't make any other gestures, nothing obscene. Uh, 
um, for the most part. But um, I, uh, what I did in that moment was there was an offense. There, it was in, or unjust, I should say, for her to cut me off and make me late, right? And she had to pay the penalty for that. See, here's the thing. Either they're going to pay for what they've done or you're going to pay by absorbing it, by absorbing that. Do you know what the resurrection shows? That God is choosing to absorb your offense. You remember what it said in, in Acts? It says, for in him we live and move and we have our being. It means that the world happens according to what God wants. It means that the way that the world works is according to God's mandate. He's chosen the allotted times that, that they live. Here's the thing. You already believe in crime and punishment. You already believe in that. You believe that people who wrong others should be, should be uh, justly dealt with. You believe that people should be put in jail. You believe that people should pay for their crimes. But where does that come from? It comes from this. It comes from the reality that you and I both know that we were built with, and that is that there is a judgment. There is a day. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the living and the dead, and he will, as a result, hold us accountable for where we are. The resurrection proves that Jesus meant what he said. The resurrection proves that when Jesus went to the cross, he's saying this, I can absorb all of the wrath that should come on you. I can absorb all of the horn honks that you deserve, all of the punishment that you deserve. I'm absorbing that on the cross if you repent and believe. You already believe in this idea of God's wrath. You already believe in this idea of punishment. The resurrection proves that it's true. And the question is up to you. Like, do you want to listen to uh, fortune cookie wisdom? Are you going to let just anybody come and give you a nugget? Here, I got something for you. Here you go. You crack that baby open. Read my blog. Read what I have to say about wisdom. Or are you going to take the most historically accurate, verifiable bunch of words, manuscripts, are you going to laugh at that? Are you going to throw that away? Are you going to say, you know what? I'm going to take the fortune cookie. Thanks. Thank you very much. I'll just have a fortune cookie for my wisdom. God says this. Real wisdom is found in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you get that, you get everything. And if you don't get that, you get nothing. Because he's fixed a day when he will judge. And I commend you in this, that you turn to Jesus Christ, you place faith in him, and that means this, that you say, God, I don't want the wrath that I deserve. All of the ways that I've wronged everyone, I know is coming against me. I do not want that, and I want Jesus to absorb that for me. And I'm going to trust you 
that you did that for me. It says in Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Fear God, believe what He says, and trust Him today. Trust Him today. This isn't a fable. It's not a joke. It's not just one of the world religions. We're celebrating our leader going to the cross. Why? Because it means everything to us. Let's pray. Lord God, I know that there's people sitting here today who don't believe me. But Lord, I know it's not my responsibility to make anybody believe. I know you're the one that can draw us to yourself. So Lord, I want to pray for those that have maybe had a new revelation this morning that like maybe I haven't investigated this. Maybe I haven't looked at all the evidence. Lord, I pray that they would truly investigate you and, and seek for wisdom, but Lord, that they would arrive at, the, at a knowledge of the truth <clears throat> eventually. Lord, I pray that they would trust in you, that they'd hope in you, that they'd get into a good church, and Lord, that they'd live for you. And Lord, as a result, I'm praying that not only do their lives flourish in the midst of sickness and pain or in the midst of great um, bounty, in the midst of great riches, Lord, I pray that they would live for you. I pray that as a result, that they would desire that other people come to know you. And Lord, that they would become people that are healers in our city and in our town and in their families. Lord, that they would heal the relationships that are broken by absorbing the wrath, by absorbing the wrongs that are done against them, the way that you have absorbed our wrongs against you. Lord, we pray for this this morning. We ask that you would do an amazing work in our hearts and in our lives and in our city. Lord, would you make our city better not just for our enjoyment and our comfort, but Lord, for your glory, that you would shine in our city because of your great resurrection, because of your great death on the cross. We thank you for that. May we celebrate this this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.